0: These are the chronicles of the journey we take together.
1: The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us Through Through the the wind. Wind Door.
0: Chapter 32 is called Where the Wild Things Are, and these wild things, whether we're talking about the Wendigo, Brioth, or Seth, are more dangerous than those in the Maurice Sendak children's book I grew up reading. Like Chapter 20, it is one of those flashpoints of conflict where anything could happen as we are on the verge of moving from Part 3 into Part 4, itself ominously titled
1: The Turning Point.
0: And here is a place where the conflict costs more than someone like Jay Hume, a man who was barely characterized before the Southern Cross killed him, more than Henry Jackson a man with his own story and a bit more character moments besides. Now it costs us a member of the team, and it feels like from here, anyone can
1: die. It's a growth of tension and stakes with Mm. loss. And with this much book left, it feels filled with apprehension that this journey has taken so much and there's still a significant amount of journey left.
0: Let's address this piece by piece because this is a heavy chapter as a result of what happens in it. First of all, it begins with the assault on Steamheart itself and having the Wendigo lay siege to it brings back one of our earlier influences that we keep referring to, in this case, aliens. Put a bullet in the jar. Unlike the Sulaco Marines, our heroes get into the protection of Steamheart early, and therefore none of them are lost as Harry tries to drive them to safety, like Ripley tried to escape in the APC. But even without acid blood the fierce swarm of the infected prove that they can do damage to Steamheart, much like happened with the APC in that movie. In the fight with the Southern Cross, we felt that overall Steamheart would survive the assault. But as the story progresses, as the action progresses, for the first time, our unspeaking member of Team Steam is put to the test, And we are scared for the group in ways we were not before.
1: It's kind of quite literally the framing device to put into perspective the state of the rest of the team. When Steamheart's pilot is out of commission, the team is directionless. When Steamheart is put through some tough scrapes, but ultimately comes through on the other side with some battle scars with the sudden cross, but nevertheless intact, the team is exhausted but ultimately uplifted by their victory, and they all get through okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Here, when Steamheart is placed under intense assault and barely holding together, the team are backed into a corner, frayed to their last nerve, and sustain permanent damage.
0: There are a number of properties out there where the home base or the city where all of the stories takes place, or a vehicle like Steamheart are considered a character in the story as much as all of the actors in it. And one of the things that I remember, especially with some of the um, the behind-the-scenes stuff, is how the Firefly in Firefly, Serenity, was considered a member of that team as much as Steamheart is considered a character in this story. Mm. In particular, certain scenes where she is she, as in the ship, is anthropomorphized by Kaylee. And obviously, it's not a one-to-one. In the show, Kaylee was hired to be the ship's mechanic, on account of her having a better sense of the ship and grew to love the ship because she became in tune with it over the course of adventures.
2: Sorry, Captain. I'm real sorry. should have kept better care of her.
1: Usually she lets me know when something's wrong. Maybe she did, I just wasn't paying attention, or...
0: Harry Arlington has a much stronger tie to Steepheart, being the one that made it. The craft is, quite literally, her baby. Therefore, even more than Kaylee... Damage done to Steamheart is damage done to Harry herself. And so the fact that it was done as much damage as it was means that we're probably going to have some scenes upcoming of Harry trying to come to terms with what's been done to her baby. Therefore, it doesn't just make us fear for the group as a whole. It makes us anticipate the emotional beats that will come to terms as soon as the action is done and we get one of those slower parts of the story where the group not only has to come to terms with what they've lost in terms of the group itself, but also their vulnerability as a result of the damage done to their craft. Of course, I don't want to diminish Park. Her value is not just how her damage will affect the group, or affect Harry, even if Team Steam may not feel the same way about her as they do about Frau. At this juncture, Steamheart is not utterly lost to them. She could be repaired. The same cannot necessarily be said for our purple tiger, which we'll get to that part of the story in due
1: course. As you said, the loss or significant damage to the mobile home, the extra member of the cast that is part of the ensemble is this recurring moment in a lot of fiction. I I could even actually see this being a subject for an episode of OSP's Trope Talk, actually. The Mm. idea of the home as an extra character. And you can see multiple instances of the destruction or disintegration of it resembling a new change. The end of the world, the life that this cast of characters has been leading up till now.
0: That happens a lot around here.
1: You have moments like the assault on the Normandy in the opening of mass effect 2 you have in the finale of justice league the animated show but before the sequel series justice league unlimited the watchtower Mm. is steered down to earth and it falls apart and you have in a very different thing in terms of literalizing the idea of the mobile home being an extra character there's an episode of doctor who written by neil gaiman called the doctor's wife in oh which yes I
2: the that one.
1: the tardis actually inhabits a character takes a humanoid shape and is able to have a conversation with the doctor and the whole episode is a very sort of fan-pleasing exploration where the doctor is able to finally have a conversation saying Fuck
2: the tube directly into the tacking yes. diverter. Yes, I have actually rebuilt a tardis before, you know. I know what I'm doing. You're like a nine-year-old trying to rebuild a motorbike in his bedroom. And you never read the instructions. I always read the instructions. There's a sign on my front door. You have been walking past it for 700 years. What does it say? That's not instructions. There's an instruction at the bottom. What does it say? Pull to open. Yes, and what do you do? I push! Every single time, 700 years, police box doors open out the way. Now, I think I have earned the right to open my front doors any way I want. Your front door. Have you any idea how childish that sounds? You are not my mother. You are not my child. You know, since we're talking with mouths, not really an opportunity that comes along very often, I just want to say, you know, you have never been very reliable. And you have? You didn't always take me where I wanted to go. No, but I always took you where you needed to go. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's and it's a great thing and uh you know the way the episode ends is very uplifting because it's the last chance that he'll ever have to essentially directly talk with the TARDIS he believes that the words that the TARDIS wants to say to him is goodbye when the TARDIS corrects him and says no it's hello it's so very good to meet you it's this feeling that a place can be somewhere that you fall in love with. And I know that you, Greg, will know that all too well. This is your reminder to please go and read The Light from Distant Bonfires. I did not contribute to it, save for a couple of paragraphs at the end of the book, but my handsome and talented co-host, Greg, contributed a chapter And it's so atmospheric, and I really, I got tingles reading it, and uh, what kind of tingles? You'll just have to read it to find out.
0: And this is where I admit that I didn't even think to promote the very book that Toby is talking about. I let friends and family know about it on Facebook, but mentioning it here on the show or on Twitter or Hellslide that it is... Well, it's too late for Christmas. But if anyone here listens to the show that doesn't regularly listen to School of Movies, then yes. I and many other members of the School of Movies community wrote a gothic anthology, inspired by some, at first, joking conversation on the Discord on different flavors of gothic storytelling that might have been untouched before. Many of its authors are people you've heard us talk with before, including Alex and Sharon Shaw, Maya Suris, the voice of Catherine Holloway, as well as Jesse Ferguson, host of Recorded Tomorrow and fellow Fireside Alliance contributor. The list includes people that I hope to have on the show at some point. Chris Fennec, fellow longtime New Century fan, wrote about New England Gothic. Willow Shaw, the voice of Leah in the Panther Soul Audio Drama, wrote a tale of witchcraft. Many others whose voices you have heard in School of Movies wrote their own tale. James Batchelor took on Urban Gothic. Nama Biddy tackled Academy Gothic. And Alejandro Vargas wrote two stories, one taking place in the mountains and another on an island. Myself, I was inspired by the recent experience of the last couple of years of quarantine Gothic. So if you have interest in Gothic tales, why not try some of the unusual variety? Available on Amazon.com in ebook and paperback format. Check out The Light from Distant Bonfires. Link in the show notes. Anyway, thank you very much. Obviously, I am I am flattered that you enjoyed. It's been a very long time since I've done anything fictional. Obviously it, it came from a genuine place, because it mm. was based on That winter last year where I was Mm. by myself in the old family home, Mm. living there by myself for the first time in a very long time. And the memories that came up, my father and my stepmother have since read it. So that was an unusual experience right there. But obviously, it also dovetailed not just with my experience of being in the house by myself, but also my growing relationship with Maureen.
2: Mm.
0: How she helped keep me on an even keel while I was... You know isolated from the world, even though it wasn't the 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 deepness of the isolation that was happening for everybody in twenty twenty it was still I was very much not like going out and doing anything other than taking care of my mom and going to work and everything like that so mm. as the saying goes, as all good lies are, the best ones are two parts truth to one part lie mm. and what with fiction being essentially a made-up story that you are telling someone else, the idea of incorporating true things into a piece of fiction is what gives it verisimilitude, is what gives it life.
1: Mm. Well, the real places and the emotion came through, and they came together in a way that formed a coherent narrative, so definitely well done.
0: Mm. Lovely side tangent going on <laughs> there, and and, An and bringing, one. yes, and and bringing some much needed lev- levity to uh, the very serious topic of this particular chapter. But let us proceed to the next serious talking point. Unfortunately,
2: mm-hmm.
0: only Hrao can face these attackers on their own terms. On Team Steam, we have soldiers and brawlers that are well equipped to face human enemies. But Hrau is a hunter, a fierce creature in her own right. And she has had to face opponents like these many times during her own time in the fierce jungle. She brings a strength to Team Steam that they would not otherwise have. And it makes me think a little bit on that version of the Avengers that Uh, Brian Michael Bendis brought into being where he did the unusual choice of adding Wolverine to the team of Avengers. And even as Tony and Steve are talking about this, like, why are we bringing Logan onto this team? He's a killer. He would seem to go against the elements that are intrinsic to the Avengers. I don't remember which of them pointed it out. Like, no, he's not a killer. He's a samurai. He's an element that we've never had on the team before, and he may well be a strength that our team needs, being able to do stuff that you or I would not be able to do. Listening back to this, I know the analogy is imperfect. I'm making a comics reference, and most people are familiar with the MCU, which Bob Chipman recently pointed out is full of killing. Most of the members of Team STEAM have killed either in their past or even in this very book. Also, it's not like Crow is exactly like Logan either. She shares some of the similarities of the group in that she only kills when necessary. But what was in my head at time of recording was that her instincts and experience are different from the humans'. She brings a different fighting style and mentality to the conflict, above and beyond her superior strength as a tiger. She can meet the Wendigo on their own terms, read them better, match ferocity with ferocity. It's the idea and aesthetics of Wolverine more than the real-world argument that Tony gives for him joining the team. And even if at first she appears to be wounded, suffer a cost for defending the group, it does seem for a brief moment like she can prevail. And then the tide changes again when Seth and Brioth appear. We once more feel that growing tension that came with the damaging of Steamheart. Because even with Hrau at her best, we cannot be certain that she can prevail against them. Especially when we know that the rest of the team possibly poses no threat to Seth and Briath at all based on past encounters.
1: Frau is like the Avatar state. Put a cabbage in the cart. Ooh in the-
0: that that's a good one. I hadn't <laughs> we hadn't discussed the possibility of adding Avatar the Last Airbender to the list of jars. <laughs> um so, so well played, sir.
1: My alternative was to just quote, how about two copper pieces in the jar? <laughs> uh, either one was good. I chose the uh, the one that was more marketable. It was more on brand. So yeah, Hrao is like how the Avatar State is positioned in that show and that she is simultaneously the team's greatest source of power but is also the most vulnerable when she is employed. Mm. Her fighting prowess and physical abilities necessitate her being in close quarters with the Wendigo, and her armour can only do so much when she's beset on all sides. True, she is able to withstand the injuries enough to see it through until it is done. There are no Wendigos standing by the end, after all, but it's not really just about how many of their side we take down is it it's what we have to give up to achieve that we felt that plenty enough when it was characters we had a passing connection to but for Frau, she is everything and suffering just one bite is enough to rip this pivotal presence in new century away from us But if we consider moments like Boromir's last stand in Fellowship of the Ring by comparison, we can see how her performance enables her to do as much as she can with the time she has left. That sentiment was already gone into with the previous chapter, which reminded us of the Gravedigger's Medal of Honour, a medal specifically constructed to honour feats that were emblematic of this concept. And when we consider what Hrau has managed up to this point in the book when she was holding back, as Miguel points out, the unrestrained tiger defending not just her cub, but a group of companions she is going to value, is going to leave nothing unspent. She never had a chance to get out of this unscathed. But in turn, once she accepts that and takes it on, there is nothing that could possibly stop her.
0: The sacrifice that came to mind was obviously Gandalf on the bridge facing the Balrog, especially when there's the symbology of Gandalf falling into the pit and Hral falling off the edge of the waterfall. Mm. But it's good that you brought up Boromir, because I hadn't necessarily considered that, and that experience almost makes more sense. Because Boromir is being beset on all sides by the orcs in the same way that Hrao was beset on all sides, first by the Wendigo, and then had to try and take on the tag team of Brioth and Seth together. Again, Mm. the only one of them that could possibly pose a threat because she is this tiger force of nature. She is the kind of thing that even the other cats of her world would fear to take on. It's, it's one. It reminds me of the conversation that was happening in regards to the two leopards thinking that because Hrao was tired, that they could defeat her in melee combat rather than taking advantage of their bows and everything like that. But no, that was a poor idea. Hrao succeeded against them anyway. But and the, the only... reason
1: that she succeeds in that moment before you get Vance is mm-hmm. that they thought that she was tired after fighting that hunt. Mm-hmm. What they did not know is, that's my secret cap. I'm always tired.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. I hadn't even... Yeah, exactly. They couldn't possibly know the stuff that Haral was carrying around mm. and that she just sort
1: of... Bulls- the only burden that, that they saw her carrying was the Quagga. And it's mm-hmm. like, bitch, this was nothing compared to what I was carrying when I took this thing down. Do you really think this is going to be a blip on my radar?
0: But the problem with being someone that can just carry burdens and bull through them is that eventually you are going to run out of
1: hmm, steam.
0: Sorry! I can't
1: but- believe I can't believe it's taken us this long to use that.
0: Yeah, exactly. But in this chapter it just keeps on ramping and ramping and ramping mm. which is why in the following chapter we need you know the coming back down the sort of the, the the way that Alex always describes it is that you need to ramp up and ramp up and ramp up and then have ha- have it subside back down you can't just have a story being constantly ramping on its place you need moments where the audience can breathe and process everything that just happened but this chapter is one of those moments where it's like it ramped up in through the southern door and was able to relax back down a bit in chapter 31 and in chapter 32 it suddenly ramped up a whole bunch higher uh now that the stakes are really like being put to the test and crow is the mvp in this moment being capable of doing something that the whole rest of the team is not capable of, facing down the force of nature that is Seth. This is literally like, uh, it, what, what is the term that they use? Uh, unstoppable
1: force an unstoppable meets an immovable object.
0: Yes, exactly. You knew exactly where I was going mm. with that. Seth is the unstoppable force, and Hrow holds the
2: line. In the battle today, we will hold the line.
1: Which, which is oh, I'm about to immovable all over your face.
0: <laughs> well, th- that I- I'm going to then run into like our further discussion on the topic. Jumping ahead. Jumping ahead, um, mm. because th- there's a natural flow to this here. As that fight takes place, we see the impossible happen that between any sniper shot of Brioth's eye and Hrau's ability to actually do enough damage to Seth, they both have to retreat. That is an amazing moment, given everything that's happened. Like, we don't know how they're going to get out of this, but Hrau is, in fact, able to fight Seth on a level that the other team cannot, and after we've been brought to this fear of what's going to happen next, how are they going to survive, they manage to actually beat Seth and Brioth for the moment, even if they are not removed from the board. But that's when the cost comes due. Mm-hmm. And either from her wound, the Wendigo infection, or some combination of the two, Prow feels herself dying. And worrying if she will become as the Wendigo, she sacrifices herself, much like Gandalf to the Balrog, as I alluded to earlier. And the emotional response, both from Team Steam and from the audience, feels like that grieving moment as the Fellowship emerged from the minds of Moria and the somber music swells and there is no sound from our team as they are just overcome with grief. Hmm. They have somehow won the day, much like the Fellowship Escape from the Mines, and yet it does not feel like victory. This is how we move into the final act, the specter of loss looming over our wounded group. With this much story left, we have to ask ourselves, as you alluded to a moment earlier, How much more will they
1: lose before the end? The connection to Gandalf is more than just a character that we love and is like possibly a fan favorite Mm. in a group falling off a ledge and out of our lives. In each case, that character wasn't just a friend, it was a singular entity. Mm. It was something that was irreplaceable in this world. It was Gandalf, one of the oldest living beings in Middle-earth. It was Hrau, this purple tiger who came from another world, this wonderful, beautiful thing. And the examination of each member's personal response is very much like how the film portrays Gandalf's death. I recall school of movies even going into this in one of their shows on the trilogy, such as Legolas's stunned expression as if he is incapable of processing that such an eternal presence as Gandalf is now lost to not just the group, but his long-lived life and the world. The group are all taking in, one by one, what has just been taken away. And the last note of this chapter is the equivalent of but carries its own weighty implications. Live. The problem, moving forward, of course, is how?
0: Obviously, we've already alluded to what potentially does come next, and I have to be careful about saying too much of that because even though a lot of the people listening to this are going to be people that have already read Steamheart or listen to Steamheart and are potentially just listening to this to hear our individual responses to a little bit of the story at a time. Mm. There are some people out there, and we've had a chance to even talk with some of them, that are listening to New Century for the first time and may well be listening to our responses to this in real time, and we don't want to spoil it for any of those new listeners. Nope. But...
1: We stay in this place a while.
0: Yeah, exactly. The reference to Gandalf makes a certain amount of sense in terms of, like, that loss happens around the middle of the fellowship.
1: Sort of two-thirds through.
0: two thirds so, through. Okay, so almost like almost the same amount. The story isn't over. This isn't a sacrifice that was made to bring us into the denouement of the story.
2: Mm. There
0: is still resolution that needs to happen for the purposes of that movie and for the purposes of Steamheart. Discussion of what must be spent in the course of a story to make it feel like the story has weight has been a significant part of New Century as a whole, that the story needs to have stakes in order to feel like a real lived-in world, so to speak. And there's already been plenty of loss that has been present in the story of New Century as a course of the overall implications of the death and catastrophe that resulted because of the Wendigo. Now it feels more real because we are dealing with a character, as you say, as... ...much a pillar of the world that New Century has crafted up to this point. And in all honesty, it's not quite the same as Gandalf. He was a mentor and a building block of the world. but much of how we feel about his death is mostly informed by the respect and emotional connections of others we don't get to see nearly as much into the internal life of him being what he is but we the audience of new century have walked in her shoes felt everything that is a part of her been there through her gains and her losses and heard it all in her own voice. After the story of Tiger's Eye, there is little of her left unexplored, of the person she was, and the person she became. There aren't that many stories that accomplish that much over one piece of media, let alone many. And the ones that come closest are some of the protagonists that mean the most to me. Sarah Connor, over the course of Terminator 1, 2, and Dark Fate. Susan Ivanova, over the course of four seasons of Babylon 5. The modern noir detective Spencer from the dozens of Robert B. Parker novels and movies exploring him and his relationships with Hawk and Susan Silverman. But all of those characters did not die as a result of their stories. Losing Howe was to me the loss of something ineffable. I did not just feel it through the other characters, I felt a loss inside Self. Worst, it was not the first one I would feel before this book is done. When we recorded on this over a month ago, I had just come back from watching Wakanda Forever, and as a result I was exactly in the best and worst headspace to be talking about Rao. I actually could not find the words, and needed to set it aside till I could return to this topic at some remove. The loss of Chadwick Boseman, and the experience of taking in a piece of media that had to address the in-universe and real-world pain of characters and actors alike, was something akin to the losses felt in Steam.
1: It is a loss of words, and even when you find the words come out of you, it is an acknowledgement and an acceptance that nothing about it is certain, because it is the one certainty that we all face, is that this is something that we encounter. It's that universal, unifying experience. And... We survive it. We face it. We feel crushed by it. And when we wake up to see another day with it still being the case, it's a part of you. And that's not necessarily good, but it's not necessarily bad either. It's just that it's part of you. And... Whether we can articulate it or not, that is something that I will forever question. But for as strange as it sounds, I think I will never reach a moment where I'm not grateful that it is a part of me.
0: That is, I think, the sign of a strong element of the tapestry of life, being able to process grief or being able to process hardship and come out of it on the other end, not necessarily stronger, but being able to accept it and feel like you are still yourself at the end, that you haven't been completely broken by the absence that it is merely that you were able to accept what another person gave to you while they were around and are also able to accept what it means that they are no longer around that you can look back on what they gave you and still feel joy as a result of those moments rather than merely the pain of absence
1: Despite everything, it's still you.
0: Mm. Okay. I wasn't expecting that line to break me, but okay.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has been a recording of profound extremes.
0: Yes, it has been.
1: We began with talks of zipper (laughs) tits, and we end in a sense of unshaking, unbreaking selfness. Those are the two things that I will always take on board, is that life is about those extremes and all the winding paths in between.
2: The most dramatic license plate of all has to be New Hampshire's which says, live free or die! Well, I'm certainly not going to move there. I get just a little nervous in any state where they mention death right on the license plates. On the other hand, Idaho says, famous potatoes. I guess those are the two extremes in thought. It would seem to me that somewhere in between, live free or die, and famous potatoes,
0: the truth lies. Uh, for those of you who don't get that don't get the zipper tits reference, don't <laughs> worry. Uh, I'll make sure to have that be a part of the um, outtakes of this particular episode. <laughs> Actually, due to the backlog of outtakes you would have heard our discussion on zipper Tits and its mysteries in the previous episode of Beyond the Wind Door. I can't help but uh, reflect on, once more, the synchronicity of you bringing up your father. Specifically, like, we've been comparing this moment in the story with Lord of the Rings, and you've talked about how Alex and Sharon's shows on Lord of the Rings helped you out during this difficult point in your life 10 years ago. So there's mm. an it's an intriguing, like, a circular aspect to it in terms of, weirdly, how that encapsulates everything, how everything comes back to these similar patterns.
1: Alex and Sharon, I know you will have heard from me before you will have heard this episode thanking you again for the difference you made then.
0: Mm. I will agree with your earlier sentiment that you can't compare the loss of one person to the loss of another. They each have their own significance to different people in different circumstances that there are people to whom the loss of Chadwick Boseman is just even more heart-wrenching than it is to others because of the importance that he represented to a lot of young black boys having their own superhero to look up to. Mm. I will also add that I've had a chance to listen to a lot of people talk about how important Kevin Conroy's version of Batman was to them. One of the things that I got to read recently was a dramatization of Kevin Conroy's Early experiences being an actor. Yes, I read and that
1: recently as well.
0: How that dovetailed with the stresses in his own personal life, being a young gay actor and not being accepted by certain parts of the acting world, and definitely not being accepted by certain parts of his own family. His just his day to day. I searched around hoping to find out if Kevin Conroy himself or even anyone else, had dramatized out the words of this comic, so I could share it with you now, obviously. Failing to find one, I provide a link to the comic in the show notes, in case you have not read it, or just need to refamiliarize yourself with the story told in these comic panels. And obviously, this is not a one-to-one. Kevin Conroy was just a steward of a character that existed long before him, and will exist long after him. Batman also had many different interpretations in comics and animation and in live action, where Maureen is currently the sole voice of Hrao. But reading the words of Conroy, I begin to understand why it was the character meant so much to him. Why, to many, his voice is the seminal voice of Conroy channeled his own pain, his own confusion and yearning, and fed all of that into his performance. And his story reminded me of Maureen's own words about Rao, what she brought into the character that Alex had written for her to give life to. You know, it 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 kind of makes me want to actually go back and appreciate batman the animated series with that understanding in mind of what he was pulling from in order to bring forth that performance in this animated show that meant a lot to a, a lot of people out there
1: there's a particular clip uh there's a lot of there's so many moments that you can use a lot of people love, the you know, like no, you are not my father I am not what you say I am I am vengeance, I am the knight I am, that's the one that they mm-hmm. go for. One of the moments I always think of is this particular episode where Bruce is investigating something like outside of Gotham and mm-hmm. he sustains damage and yet he actually suffers temporary memory loss and for the majority of the episode he's in this situation where men are being exploited, their desperation has put them into a situation where they are put in an inescapable circumstances when they don't fall in line, they're placed in literal sweat boxes to put be put under even more pressure and Bruce is there and he is doing things because it is right, but he doesn't remember who he was and everything and the way that kevin conroy famously was always able to differentiate the voice between bruce wayne and batman you see it in this moment where when he doesn't remember batman he is talking to this friend he's made in this circumstance and there's a lightness to his voice and earnestness that's there And I feel that that was probably his authentic, and you can hear it in interviews as well. He was this person who was capable of lightness and kindness. And then when, and he's encouraging his friend not to give up hope. And then the friend says something that spurns a thought where he mentions his family, and that word rings in his head. The imagery comes back as all the memories come back. He feels Batman rise out of him, and he then says, with a resolve filled with pain and gravel, Riley, you've got to pull it together. We're getting out of here. There is a change. The man is there, but he has undergone intense pressure and come through as him, but also different. There are a few performances that are able to understand those multiple facets, I think. The best episode to revisit and carries a dual bittersweetness to it now is uh, Beware the Grey Ghost. Ah, uh, yes. An episode which is an homage to Adam West mm. and now features the excellent work of two men who I think understood and Delivered defining versions of Batman, I think. We've gotten a little off topic, but then, as ever, isn't this the topic of New Century? The many ways that we grieve and the many ways we celebrate and remember, not in spite of, but through it.
0: I mean, we are going to get back on topic to close out our episode, but. It's, I don't think it's necessarily too off-topic to say mm. that very often the way that we process New Century is the emotional resonance that we draw upon from other pieces of media that mean a lot to us, and as well as from our own personal experiences, how we see ourselves through the stories that we love the most. So I think it all very much does make sense. That sometimes we need to sit a little bit with this thing reminds us of this other thing and being able to relate the two together in order to process the emotion that comes up as a result of these powerful moments in stories that mean a great deal to us. Let's close out our recording today with a little bit of a discussion on Seth. We sort of know going into this, especially considering all of the lead-up that the book has already taken us through, that there is no way that this encounter with Seth could have ended well. Even if things had not happened the way that they did, we know from experience that Seth demands superior privilege. We do not know, cannot know, because the story hides so much of him in shadow, how much he actually cares about being denied his home. Or, as he puts it at one point, the supposed bloodline of the Wendigo. His minions, his pets, his people, he seems to suggest. We know what he says to everybody else. But the more important thing is that he was disobeyed, thwarted. And the group has taken from him the Windor, his people, and more importantly, has impugned his sovereignty. Mm. None of the words spoken actually matter. The only thing that Seth cares about is that which he doesn't understand, such as Hrow and the starlit eye that he sees in James something that he is able to sense and grok the nature of somehow without even knowing exactly what it is. It further Mm -hmm. makes us ask questions about what he is, even though those questions may never be answered. In this moment in the story, he is less a person and more that force of nature, that demigod that we made reference to in our discussions on Arlington. And so, therefore, the group must face him, not as someone that can be reasoned with, but something they must either find a way to defend against, or flee. This mindset in mind, I was surprised by a recent bit of characterization that Alex revealed when School of Movies covered the movie Pitch Black. Apparently, the persona of Riddick contributed to the framing of Seth, which was a bit of a shock, even as I could follow Alex's comparison between those two characters. After all, for all that Riddick associates himself as being a cool, relentless predator, at least part of that is facade, hiding what I believe is an all-too-human and flawed truth. Seth, meanwhile, has a great deal more power than Riddick ever had. He is far more enigmatic, but also potentially has far more reason to be as arrogant as he is regarding how he views humanity. As a result of him seeming inhuman, he may well think inhumanly as well, and simply have different values rather than his persona being a mask for something else. I would say more on this, but unfortunately it would involve information that has not been yet revealed, both in this story and in later books. So we will continue from here with our original recording.
1: The escalating tension as we explore Seth's response to what our heroes have undertaken and accomplished is quite palpable. While Annie's conclusion is, yup, there's no way to talk our way out. Run! It's an accomplishment that we go into this encounter believing that there could be some way to navigate a way around it through diplomacy after all we've established that Seth has altered his course of action upon discussing things with others and has even elected not to turn Annie into a wendigo after she expressed her own will against his there's so much we don't know about Seth including just what his end goal is it was entirely possible that closing the door back to Saitash wouldn't affect his ambitions at all. There was no way to know until he was there in front of you. And Hrow's attempt at common ground between them is a gamble that you can see some scenario where that might have worked until you see how Seph responds. That's when all uncertainty is removed, and all that's left is to survive this brush with unrestrained, primal, and otherworldly rage. It's an unusual scenario to see in a group odyssey such as this. Seth isn't as transparently and wholeheartedly evil as this comparison, but imagine if Sauron met up with the Fellowship after the ring was destroyed, and just said, What the fuck did you just do? The goal is accomplished. The group has eliminated, or at least alleviated, a broader threat somewhat. Now it's the real stakes of just how much the rage of this aggressor will take away before he is done.
2: Mm.
0: That's kind of almost a little bit the nail in the coffin there, because we were already worried, is Hrao going to survive The the bite, the, the infection of the Wendigo, we don't know. No. But after what happened with her fight with Seth, we can believe that the possibility of her succumbing or her dying is far greater than if she did not face off against Seth. That's part of what makes that moment hit as hard as it does she protected the group but at a certain cost of her own life Mm. or even just okay my body is now weaker to defend against the infection i would not have myself become a monster that the group has no hope of defeating
1: yeah that is actually like quite a significant detail is that this isn't just a sort of zombie apocalypse narrative scenario where someone has been bit and then they shoot themselves so that they don't have to turn into a zombie it's that if this person has a chance of turning we've seen what she's capable of like doing when she was to a certain extent conscious and perhaps holding some part of her back imagine her but with no like body de- deterioration just pure unrestrained and unmoral id you can't do anything against that and
0: it, it's like imagining i don't remember if this was actually in the movies themselves but the thing that was introduced at some point during the alien versus predator games was mm. the idea of what what happens if a face hugger implanted an embryo inside one of the predators and something resulted from that, that is one part Xenomorph, and one part Predator Alien. The Pred-Alien. The as pred-alien. they make reference- Yeah, exactly, mm. as they make reference to it, yeah.
1: So in the first one, they plant the seed of it as a, like, uh to be continued, and then there was the, by all accounts, awful uh, <laughs> sequel to AVP, so I think that's the one that has it, but yeah. it is the sort of, the worst outcome, kind of, and mm-hmm. As an aside, I forget if I've uh, shared this on the podcast or not. My first exposure to both the Aliens and Predator franchises was seeing an advert on a VHS. Like, this <laughs> this isn't a DVD. This is like <laughs> video. V, v, VHS um, is the tone of that. Seeing a trailer for AVP on that. And being completely confused as a sort of eight-year-old kid watching it, it's so like, well, they both look like aliens and they both look like predators. So which, <laughs> like, which one's which?
0: Yeah, well, it doesn't matter, as the tagline of that movie itself says: "Whoever wins, we lose."
1: <laughs> That's got to be one of the best taglines, right? <laughs> like.
0: I mean, I would also like. That's kind of the overall tone of what was it? Uh, Freddy versus Jason as well. Like two horror movie monsters fighting each other, but like they all just want to kill everybody else. So
1: yeah, and unfortunately, the audiences didn't win out in that case either. Yeah. It was it was its thing, uh, and yeah. I shall round off by saying that uh, if you're expanding your horror repertoire. I would say, ready or not, deserves your time more than Freddy vs. Jason.
0: I don't remember I've seen all of Freddy vs. Jason. I've definitely seen other people review Freddy vs. Jason. I don't. Mm. I, I think it might have been something that Linkara covered at one point
1: because that was the like the comic continuation of it, wasn't it? Yeah, with, like, yeah. Ash, yeah, yeah. Bringing it back
0: before mm-hmm. we get too far, far off topic again. Something that I wanted to talk about during our previous conversation how Seth's assertion of quote unquote his bloodline how that conflicts with what we now know about the Wendigo. Mm. Like, we don't necessarily understand what Seth is. He refers to the olive world of Sytash, he's how we know it's called Sytash, and there is the implication that he came from that world, that he isn't some like weird mutation of the Wendigo, but that he somehow contains the infection that makes more Wendigo. But at the same time, the person that first came into the Centrum universe and started the Wendigo infection there was just a human. It wasn't necessarily they came into contact with Seth, it was just that they came into contact with the plants that mm. we saw and then spread into our world. And we talked about how
1: this was basically just an accident. How, how does Seth fit into all that? Like, yeah, exactly. that's the, like, that's the thing is that we, you're absolutely right. Like we've sit, gone into Saitash. It's like you finish Arlington and you encounter uh, Seth and, you just have to ask yourselves, okay, so how does this creature control the Wendigo and how did the Wendigo work? And you just think Hermes and Futurama are going,
2: That's a very good question.
1: And then you see the whole deal of how Saitash works and the Wendigo and you have no idea where Seth falls into it. And you just think,
0: That just raises further questions. <laughs> exactly. And in the meantime, it's like if all the Wendigo existed because the infection originally came from you, then I guess I can see how there's a bloodline thing going on there, much like, you know, say, Dracula making more vampires, all of which are controlled by him. But the implication from the previous chapter was that this would have happened whether Seth was involved or not. So now all of a sudden, we have to ask ourselves, why does he even care? Does he even care? This is
1: part of the reason why I brought up the whole... Is it his world? Is he piggybacking off like Saitash and the Wendigo? And if that's the case, how does he have it? How did this connection form? Did he do it? Does he have help? What is going on?
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I, I guess we just sort of have to put all of that to one side because it's not necessarily relevant to the proceedings of what continues on from here, because he's been chased off. We don't know if he'll return at this point. I mean, Mm. he's a a pretty significant villain, so we would expect he would return. But, Mm. like, because we never see anything from his perspective, we don't actually know what's going on in his head when he says the things he does. It's just that as you and I are trying to unpack these things together... We're trying to figure out how these things fit into each other, what the possible Mm. explanation could be, because the story isn't giving it to us, Mm. and all we're noticing is all of the weird conflicts and the fact that, you know, just because he is a potent enemy does not also make him an unreliable narrator.
1: Yeah, there are so many questions.
0: I would go on to say that yes, Toby and I do have more information as a result of both Steamheart and other future books, which, of course, we can't get into here. That doesn't mean we have all the answers, only that we have more questions and answers than we can get into in this episode. Regardless, as mentioned before, the reason I brought this up to begin with is that even if we did know what was in Seth's head... The answers would not change the course of events, the consequences of which put us in the right frame of mind for the final enemies, confrontations, and resolutions of Steamheart.
1: Okay, well, what a a winding road we've gone on, and I knew that this uh, episode was going to be a high hurdle to clear, a real difficult section. I. I think when we started Steamheart, I was thinking, how do we talk about it? How mm-hmm. do we convey the impact of it? And I hope we've done that because you always, with a ongoing series like and the big moments in it, want to make sure that you cover it from all the angles you need to, especially for as comprehensive a production as we run here. the The trick is that we don't, we can't cover responses to this but i think we did a very good job of conveying what this moment meant to us which is really the only thing that we can do so yeah steamheart has reached an almighty bump in the road and we are not quite done no. there's still one last act of the journey for us to limp through With this heavy gash, this major wound sustained to us, we'll just have to see if things can get better or if they can get worse or if staying here is punishment enough.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, listeners, thank you for staying with us during this turbulent time as I do my best to try and get episodes out I'm not through the woods entirely in terms of having a lot of my personal time taken up with work and settling the new apartment and just being tired from all of that. I can't necessarily promise that things will return to how they were because those were a very specific set of circumstances Mm. that were primarily fueled by having a lot of spare time to myself, particularly Mm. during the pandemic. But Toby and I are not going to stop recording on this. And I'm not oh, going to stop. No, no, we're, we're, we, we are we're going to keep on this however long it takes to put these things out. I am never going to get tired of talking about these stories. And mm. like, even if I wasn't going to be talking about this, I have to talk with Toby about something. Because Toby is a wonderful cinnamon roll and we fuel each other. I would need to have, as Maureen would put it, I need to have my regular Toby tie.
1: Regular Toby time is the alternative title of this podcast. So, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to label it in your iTunes, like sort of album details, like I'm cool with it. And uh, yeah, I need my Greg time too. Next weekend, I will probably be uh, by myself in the flat. And it's entirely possible that I shall be reaching out for a bit of informal just conversation and discussion with you, Greg. Absolutely. I, I'm just happy to spend time with my friend. So, yes, this has been a delightful and very rewarding evening.
0: So once more, thank you, listeners, and we'll see you soon—or I guess we won't see you soon because we're—we don't have cameras. Oh, we always
1: box. see them, Greg. We—we <laughs> we know what you get up to. The great eye is ever watchful. <laughs> is that how you sign off?
0: Another trip very soon. Through the wind are. take care. once more this took way longer than I hoped and more frustratingly it's indicative of how difficult future discussion of the final act of Steamheart will be of course there have also been other issues affecting our release schedule including Toby's own personal stuff so to be honest the next episode will already take a bit to come out as we have yet to record it it is my hope that we will finish covering Steamheart around the time that Panther Soul finishes. I'm already thinking that maybe the way to address my feelings in regards to the darkness is to not dive too deep and letting the work speak for itself. But, well, we'll see when we get there. I already have a few pieces in mind for the upcoming episodes, but once more it took way too long to try and get the right mood for this discussion on Chapter 32. And while most of my choices have come from my past, this one is more likely to be recognizable to most. Until next time, Mrs. Celine Dion with Ashes. What's
2: left to say? These prayers aren't working anymore Every way shot down in flames What's left to do with these broken pieces on the floor? I'm losing my voice calling on you I've been shaking, I've been bending backwards till I'm broke Watching all these dreams go up